Hi, everyone. Today, I have Alan Knowles with me from Cura. Hi, Alan. Hi, Catherine. Hi, everyone. We are going to be talking through a number of quirky cases to give a kind of crash course on high-risk insurance options. This is going to be a first of a few episodes where we'll have Alan on doing sort of like a bit of a, a run-through masterclass of what you can do for getting things. And uh, today will be a focus upon life insurance. So this is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Alan, I'm going to ask you how your weekend's gone. It's a bit of a strange one, actually, because usually I don't know what the other person's been up to, but seeing as though we're together in lockdown, I, I know everything that you're doing. So just tell everybody else, how have you been? I've been very good, thank you. Uh, th- this is where I really surprise you and you find out I've been doing all these things that you've got no idea what I've actually been doing <laughs> out of this secret life. Um, so I'm really not that exciting. <laughs> so, um, so uh, well, I mean, officially, Catherine and I are both on leave this week, uh, and this is obviously how we spend our, our, our leave. Um, but we were supposed to be holiday Monday. Yeah, <laughs> we were we were supposed to be in centre parks this week, but um, we we sort of ummed and ahed about it for a long time. And due to some of the restrictions on the swimming pool and everything, we decided actually we weren't going to go. Um, and instead, we thought, well, we'd just have a week at home with the kids, with the exception, obviously, of this uh, this podcast. So um, on Saturday, I took our six year old to his first ever football match, um, as in he was actually playing in a football match, and he's only been to about three training sessions, bless him, beforehand. So. Um, he didn't really know exactly what he was doing, but uh, he got stuck in and tried. But within about 10 to 20 seconds of being on the pitch, he uh, he actually defended a goal. But he did this by taking a hard ball to the chest when one of the other team kicked it at the goal. So he stopped it going in the goal, which was brilliant. But then he was pretty petrified of the ball for the rest of the match when he was uh, when he was playing, bless him. Uh, yeah. What else have we been doing? We've watched the Guardians of the Galaxy films with the kids. We've made pizza and I've been roped into playing Minecraft and Roblox. Roblox? Roblox? Um, I don't even know the name of it. Whoever's got, if you've got kids who like Minecraft, chances are you'll probably know what Roblox is. If not, it's something like Minecraft and I couldn't really tell you the difference. Uh, we've been to the beach this morning and I've volunteered myself to take the kids camping in the garden tonight. So uh, it's a, probably the ultimate staycation at the moment, staying at home in the back garden. Absolutely. And I was going to say, I'm very, very thrilled that you're the one that will be camping with them because I'm, I'm not a camper. So <laughs> It's all right. You can have Zachary, the three-year-old. That's, uh, that, that's definitely the harder task. That's fine by me. <laughs> So um, usually on these um, episodes, we have a truth or lie feature, and you've got a little bit of an in on this one, which is, is a bit unfair, really, for listeners. Um, but last time, Lindsay and me were talking about our office nicknames. Now, Lindsay said that her office nickname is Tigger, and I said that mine is Cake Tin. And I say, you're cheating, Elizabeth, on this one. So would you like to actually do the reveal this time as to which one is right and which one's a lie? It's be quite embarrassing if I get it wrong, won't it, on this? <laughs> yeah. So... Obviously, for this one, I know the right answer, and the person telling the truth is um, is Lindsay with Tigger, because yeah. uh, we we call her Tigger because she bounces around the office. She just she's got so much energy, and she just bounces around. Tigger, by the way, from Winnie the Pooh. I'm sure everybody knows that, but uh, yeah. you know the wonderful the wonderful thing about Tiggers. So I'll let everyone just uh, just uh, imagine that one. Absolutely, absolutely. And just for anyone who's interested in listening, um, I have been nicknamed the dragon in the office, which I'm actually pretty, pretty proud of. Um, Anyway, so there's quite a few things we're going to be chatting about in this episode, Alan, but I think we've got quite a lot of stuff. So we're not going to be kind of, sorry, nattering too much, just going to get really down to business with things. So I think a lot of people and most of our listeners are going to see you as a leader 
within our industry when it comes to specialist protection advice. You are also the chair of the PDG and have recently become an executive with the Income Protection Task Force. And the first thing we're going to do is focus upon some uh, case studies um, that you have from, from Cura and what you do in a sense to really show what is possible when it comes to insurances and sometimes the, the different steps that advisors can possibly take to get that insurance for somebody in sort of like a, a fair and reasonable terms. So would you like to kick off with your first case study, please? Yeah, sure. I um, have to feel a bit of pressure now, actually. It's uh, listing all those, <laughs> listing those things. And uh, um, <laughs> so, um, no, I've, um, I've, I've, got a f- I've got a few case studies. So um, I, 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 if I tell you what, if I just, I'll, I'll go into the first one then. Um, yeah, I guess you'll just shout at me, Catherine, if, uh, if you've any questions or if you want me to, to shut up. As Absolutely. So. I was going to say, why not change? We may as well not change from our usual lifestyle anyway. So I'll just shout at you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> see this is yeah this is the husband and wife thing really coming out now the um, husband and wife episode we'll just get our own spin-off series to <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah go ahead so first i think believe the first person you're going to be speaking about is potentially a, a cancer case study is that right it is indeed so yes yeah, so um I, I wanted to talk a little bit about a female client um so she was a non-smoker she was in her mid-30s and she'd had um, a condition called ALL, ALL, which is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, so I'll just just explain that is a form of, of blood cancer. Um, obviously, I won't go into to sort of too much detail on that. Um, but she she'd had this condition 15 years ago. Now, a lot of the time when CP, we see people with acute leukemias, they're usually very very young when they they have this. Um, obviously, she would have been. 20 which you know for i guess for some of the clients we've seen is 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 a bit older um so she had this 15 years ago she very unfortunately had a relapse so after her first lot of treatment and this was 13 years ago so the total treatment that she had was radiotherapy chemotherapy and she also had a bone marrow transplant now all of this had been finished around about 12 to 13 years ago so she'd now been completely free and in remission for for obviously a, a number of years now actually arranging cover for someone who's had leukemia is is quite often possible but obviously once you throw in that relapse into it it did cause most insurers to actually decline to offer any life insurance for her um i'm pleased to say we we were able to arrange her some life insurance but um, basically we applied for um for, for life insurance only um because uh, yeah there's usually a bit of a bit of a strange one actually for me um and, and i'm sure someone will be able to tell me a reason actually for this one but it's one of the ones i'm not sure but actually for critical illness usually when we're looking at an acute leukemia you've usually got to be free of the condition for 20 years before you can actually look at critical illness with most insurers but uh, but anyway for, for life insurance for this lady we applied just for for the life cover and now Obviously, with something like this, they tend to write out to the customer's doctor. As, a, as an insurance company, you write out to the customer's doctor and get full information from them. Now, this happened with this lady. Problem is, the doctor took an absolute age. They were an absolute nightmare trying to get the report back. And it was one of these where actually, rather than taking weeks, it was stretching into months um, to actually get all the medical information back. Um, very sadly, during this time, um, as if she hadn't already been through enough, this lady was diagnosed with breast cancer. And this is before we actually started the policy. So this was whilst we were waiting for, for that GPR back from the insurer. Um, now, the customer contacted us. Obviously, she was really upset. She was, you know, she, she'd been through this twice before, you know, let alone to have to go through it again all these years later. Um, but actually, the insurer that we had chosen for this policy for her um, 
didn't require further disclosure of information. And for any brokers who are listening and advisors who are listening, there are a couple who will do this. So, so if you don't know about this, it's worth checking because had we have gone to an insurer on this one where they required ongoing disclosure throughout the application, um, she would have just had that offer pulled. She, she wouldn't have been able to, to still buy the life insurance. But because we didn't need to tell the insurer about the breast cancer that had just been di- di- diagnosed, and we did double check this with them as well, they said they didn't need to know, they were able to continue underwriting the policy and actually offer her the cover. So this lady was actually offered cover. Um, we did her £100,000 worth of decreasing life insurance for her mortgage, and we did her £100,000 worth of level term life insurance just for extra family protection until the age of 70. The decrease in life insurance came back at £7 per month and the level term life insurance at £14 per month. So she got her overall life insurance for £21 per month. And believe it or not, actually, those prices included what we call 100% loading. So effectively, premiums were nearly double what they should have been, which really I, I don't think was was bad you know i think that was a really really good offer and obviously considering her diagnosis during the application it was it was quite incredible really i think that's something that really stands out and i'm, I'm sure i've mentioned this on the previous episode as well is that you know sometimes we see these things and it can be you know people who are applying themselves it could be other advisors it could be you know power planners anybody and you see something like leukemia you see that there's been a couple of relapses you then find out that there's a current thing a new, sorry, new diagnosis of breast cancer and each thing that's adding up you know you do kind of have that instinct of thinking okay this may not be the easiest route or okay there's going to be terms here that are going to be silly prices or you know, even if they are available and I think it really really stands out on this one as well just the, the fact that there can be a premium increase but it doesn't mean that it's going to be a silly price you know it may still be well within the affordability of the person who is applying for 21 pounds per month isn't you know for, for quite a lot of, for some people obviously that is that is too much you know they, they would need it to be much cheaper but for probably a lot of people 21 pounds per month for that life insurance is quite a, a feasible amount and I appreciate that some people won't like the fact that there is a premium increase there um, depending upon the situations that they that they have themselves but it's, you know, with all of that stuff that was going on, we still managed to get the life insurance for £21 per month, which which I think is is brilliant. And I think something that's quite interesting, and I've mentioned this before, Alan, and maybe you can help us like, describe some of it, which is, has become quite technical. So when it comes to things like the premium loadings, it can be something like you often see maybe something like 50% or 100% premium loading. And I do this with my um, with my team when I'm training so like new advisors. And I know it was something that I actually really struggled to get my head around when I was first starting to look at advising is the fact that if you have a 50% loading, then you have to take that premium, the original premium times it by 1.5. If it's 100% loading, you take the original premium and you actually times it by two because the premium itself is in a sense 100%. So if you've got it by another 100%, then that's it times by two. And then if it's 200% loading, you have to times that original premium by three. And it can get a little bit confusing sometimes, I think. And then when you get into ones that aren't like your standard 50 or 100 or 200% loadings, that can make it even more confusing. But I know obviously with a lot of cancers and other situations, maybe like especially through sports and things like that, there is this thing known as a per mil. And I know obviously quite a lot of our listeners are probably very, very aware of that kind of a rating. But Alan, can you just sort of like, take it in a sense back to basics as to what a per mil is 
and um, and then hopefully that'll just as as well probably for myself as well again just clarify in my head as to how it's actually all calculated out. Yeah, sure. So, so basically, yeah, I mean, you've just explained what a percentage increase is. So, um, a percentage increase is probably the most common that we see, and that's that's applied to most medical conditions. So, anything from a high BMI to a heart condition to arthritis, um, you know, any most medical conditions will result in a premium increase. And it's pretty easy to work out because roughly you can double the premium, triple the premium, um, etc. If you go to a per mil, on the other hand, this is the other way that usually we will see premiums increase. Instead of being charged based on the premium and say doubling or tripling, what the insurer will do is they'll apply an extra premium for every thousand pounds worth of cover that you purchase. So that's where the per mil basically part comes in, meaning per every thousand, every thousand. So if I give an example with this, if if somebody was charged five pound per mil, on a, on a premium, they would be paying an extra five pounds per year for every thousand pounds worth of cover they buy. So if you buy a hundred thousand pounds worth of cover, you've got a hundred times five, which is 500 pounds per year is your extra premium. Work that out monthly. It's roughly 40 pounds per month. Now, I, I guess, you know, you've already said, you know, okay, with this, it, it's, it's usually applied to, um, people have had cancer. Um, it's usually applied to sports, hazardous sports activities, sometimes to foreign travel, um, but also um, to certain medical conditions it has done in the past. Um, but probably the big one where we see it is, uh, is more recent suicide attempts um, or suicidal thoughts, etc. Um, they can also apply that sort of a, a premium increase to. Um, Interestingly, I guess it can work out better or worse depending on how old you are. If you're a younger life, typically a percentage increase is going to be better because if your premium's £5 for, I don't know, £200,000 worth of cover, doubling your premium goes £10 a month, which is, is nothing. If you get a decent per mil loading on that, your premium could go from £5 up to 50, 60, even hundred pounds per month because it's based on the cover that you're buying. And, and conversely, that works the opposite if, if, if you're an older life as well. So you typically would find then a per mil might work out a bit cheaper for an older life. It's not an exact science, but, uh, but, but that's the general sort of theory of it. Okay, thank you. And so, um, so we chat about that one. Do you have a another case study then? I know you've got a few to chat to. I do indeed, I do. So another medical condition next. So um, interestingly, this one was sent to us through an IFA who who couldn't place uh, this this client case. Um, well, at least not at any premium that the client was was happy to pay. So um, we had a customer in his late thirties. Um, he was a non-smoker, and he would been diagnosed fifteen years ago with a condition called IgA nephropathy. Now it's basically a kidney condition which um, causes damage to sort of the small filters around the, the kidneys. And we're going to wait for a flood of emails from uh, from underwriters and claims people. Underwriters a bit. I, 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 no, that's, that's not, not what, what it does. <laughs> you simplified it too much, Alan. <laughs> um, but um, but basically, you know, it, it's quite a serious kidney condition. Now, very sadly, ten years ago, his kidneys did actually fail him. Um, he's very lucky. Um, his loving mother donated a kidney to him um, and you know he, he now lives a life with three kidneys albeit two of them aren't actually in use and you know all he's obviously put on the one kidney um, and we do find that insurers much 
tend to, well, tend to, to, to much prefer um, seeing a transplant from a living relative rather than, for example, from a deceased donor, because the chance of rejection is much lower when it's from a living relative. Um, and the good news is he was fine and he made a full recovery, um, as did his mother as well. Now, um, as with many of our cases, most insurers did decline or would decline cover for him. Um, they'd had one quote from a specialist insurer, but it was hundreds of pounds per month. It was just far too much. This was actually the, you know, one of the examples where a per mil loading uh, was being applied and just made it very, very expensive for, for, for the client. Um, this client, I sorry, I did forget to mention. Actually, he did have a complication as well, so it wasn't a straight, quite straightforward. Um, all was fine up until just shy of a year ago. So about ten months ago, he had a CMV virus, which is a cytomegalovirus. Um, if you could see my face, I was uh, I was pulling a bit of a face, and when I was saying that, just make, there, <laughs> trying to think, make well. sure I got that one right. <laughs> and my understanding is that this can be a higher risk for people who have had transplants. Um, he was fine though, and he did make. a full recovery from that virus but um, but yeah so the, the one quote he had had was from a specialist which was very very expensive now we were able to actually do this with a percentage loading instead of a per mil so basically a 150 percent increase on his basic premiums it worked out at um, and for him that was 215 thousand pounds worth of level term life insurance so policy that would pay 215 thousand pounds if he passed away and that's in the over the next 11 years and that was 33 pounds per month now obviously the premium on that i think all things taken into account was was absolutely fantastic the only thing that i was disappointed with with this one was the 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 the, the term cap so 11 years is half the length of the mortgage that this person's got really we needed this over well 20 25 years um but because of when the organ transplant was the insurer was only willing to offer 11 years to us on this one but from our perspective it was cover it was um you know affordable and actually it's something that we will go back and do regular reviews on so if we can get something better for him in the future then of course absolutely we are going to do that yeah, I was going to say another thing I think from that for me, picking up on that as an advisor and something is, is that sometimes you have to adapt things like you're saying that ideally, we would have had double the length of term. Um, but obviously, that wasn't going to be available. So it, it was kind of as if we've had to do a bit of a compromise, everybody's had to compromise along the way. So you know, like he could have had potentially something that would cover his full mortgage, but the price of it, I mean, I think he went to hundreds of pounds per month, and it just was not affordable for him. And you know, sometimes you just have to go with what is actually available at that time. And as long as the client is obviously aware of what's available and they understand, you know, you go through it very clearly with them to say, look, this is what's going to happen. This is the term ideal, you know, still say to them, ideally, in a sense, in an, in an ideal world, you would take this one over here that covers a full mortgage term and it is hundreds of pounds per month. But we also have to be realistic about what is actually going to be affordable for you. and and what you feel comfortable paying for as well. You know, I think there's, there's got to be sometimes, it, I think it's that whole thing, there's not always an ideal world situation when it comes to insurances, but there are options and there are ways to sort of change and alter the policies that you are recommending and offering. And as long as you give the client all the options, you know, even if something is seeming like it's like ridiculous money, 
if you give that option to them and you also give them another option, then you are giving them that choice. It's not that you're automatically, you're not assuming that they can't afford something. You're not assuming that you're making the best option for them. You just need to make sure that you make them fully aware of all the options that sit in front of them. And I believe you have another case study for us. I do indeed. I'm going to move away from the health conditions this side uh, this time. So, um, so we were contacted by a customer who was due to go and work in Libya, um, providing some support to their police system. Now, anyone who's ever had sort of customers who have picked up a new job and they're going to go work somewhere um, sort of overseas, etc., you tend to find they ring you a few days before they're due to go. So it's always time is absolutely of the of of the essence um we do cover sometimes for people who work in iraq and afghanistan and you can guarantee they'll ring you the day before they're due to hop on a, on, a, on a plane so um, my only ask would be if anyone ever does listen to this is give us a little bit more time ideally with it but uh, but we're used to it so um so this customer was due to go I th- I th- in the next few days to, to a week basically um so he'd given us a little bit of time which uh, which was good now he'd been told almost everywhere that he could not get life insurance due to his travel even though he was a UK resident, he was a UK taxpayer, and he would continue to be a UK taxpayer. Um, He'd had one other company quoted, but it was life insurance only, and the price was very, very high. Um, On this one, I'm pleased to say that we were able to source him £250,000 worth of life insurance over 20 years for £22 per month, which obviously was, was very, very cheap, uh, considering he was due to go work in, uh, in Libya. We were able to do him a short-term income protection policy because he was still going to be a UK taxpayer. Um, £2,500 per month this would pay if he couldn't work for more than 13 weeks, and this would pay him for up to two years if he couldn't do his own occupation. And that was a little over £50 per month. And we also did him a little bit of accident cover as well. So basically through his work, they actually gave him some accidental injury cover in case he got injured whilst he was out there. But obviously he didn't have that same covering at home. So we were able to offer some fracture cover, some accidental injury cover, some hospitalization benefit that covered him whilst he was in the UK as well. You know, ideally, this is, you talk about compromises. This is another one. Um, I would have loved to have had some critical illness in there for him. Um, Interestingly, I could have done him some critical illness cover, um, but it wouldn't have been one of your standard UK providers. It would have been extremely expensive. Um, And to be honest, it was just far, far outside of his budget. Um, I'd have also loved to have done him a long-term income protection policy, but due to the travel and where he was going, this isn't something that the insurer was willing to take on. So, you know, that was a bit of a compromise and something, again, we'll review for him because he won't, you know, this was a, you know, a sort of a, a one-off contract doing this. If his job changes and he's not working in Libya next time, we might then be able to review that and get a different policy. You look at the critical illness, look at a longer term IP. So, you know, for, for me, the, the these sorts of cases and obviously any case, but these especially show the value of keeping in touch with your customers and, and talking about these changes and where they're due to go. Of course, it might might be the opposite he might end up working in iraq or afghanistan or somewhere that's even harder to place so we might not be able to do anything but yeah. it's important for us then as advisors just to make sure that we do keep in touch absolutely and i think the interesting one there for me as well was the income protection side of things it's sort of like again adapting the way the advice goes depending upon the situation but we are going to do a very specific um income protection episode with you so you can show us like all the different ways that you can kind of tweak things and and sort of like play about with um, different aspects of an income protection policy because i think you've always said from 
what you've said this to me for years is that you find that the most flexible policy type that you can possibly do is income protection just because there are that many different options that can be looked at oh definitely and, I mean, what other policy can you go for a you know a long-term claim a five-year claim a three-year claim a two-year claim a you know different deferment periods different benefit levels you've got more insurers than you have on the term side it's it's an incredible policy yeah and, and obviously i think as well it's so so key right now because i think I think we all experienced this, many of us as advisors experienced it since coronavirus and everything, that people just were swarming and wanting income protection. I think it's really hit home to people and I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll be something that carries on, um, sorry, being of interest to people. And do you have any more case studies? I think you've got, is it another one, another two? I'm not I've sure, got two, if you spare me the time for them. Oh, <laughs> oh, go on then. I'll let you, if you make me a couple later. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So I've got uh, basically here a, a male client in his late 40s, no health conditions whatsoever, but he was a regular skydiver. Um, and in fact, actually, he was due to go skydiving the afternoon. Uh, so we spoke in the morning and that afternoon he was due to go skydiving as well. Um, now, he would do between 50 and 100 skydives per year. Um, he would never base jump or anything like that um but he he did do free falling and that free falling was just just an added complication with it so basically the base jumping means that he's not jumping well that if it was base jumping he'd be jumping off buildings and stuff like that which he's not doing are they the ones where they wear squirrel suits I think of like flying squirrels, you know, when they suddenly like send their skin out in a sense, it's like explore themselves. Is that the is that the base jumping type one? Yes, but I don't think it's called a squirrel suit. It's a it's a wing suit, but that so that's it a f- needs to be called a squirrel suit. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine you now uh, just asking on the insurance application, do you ever do you ever wear a squirrel suit? Yeah, absolutely. But now it's gonna wonder whether or not I ask that just if anybody, not as whether or not the jumping or anything just said to people, Do you ever wear a squirrel suit? Just you know, you never know. <laughs> Sorry, I've interrupted. Sorry, that's no, all right. Before we di- we digress. Um, so yes. Um, so anyway, he's jumping from a plane. Anyway, I won't, I won't go into base jumping again. Um, so the client <laughs> for this one, this is another example of where um, you know a per mill was offered. So rather than it being a just casting back to what I said about percentage loadings and per mill, this client was offered a per mill loading. So this this chap was offered one point five per mill. Um, so so not one, not two, just just bang in the middle. So for every thousand pounds worth of cover that he would buy, he was charged an extra one pound fifty per year. Now we arranged uh, three hundred thousand pounds worth of life insurance for for this gentleman. So basically three hundred times one point five, and then divide it by twelve, and you get uh, roughly thirty eight pounds per month extra on his premiums. Um, so yeah, three hundred thousand pounds, twenty years, um, and it worked out at about sixty pounds per month, including that extra thirty uh, thirty eight pounds per month. Now, there was a couple of considerations that we had for this one. Um, so the first one is we had the option with this insurer to apply an exclusion for his skydiving 
instead of a premium increase. Now, it's quite an interesting one, and, and, and you know, a lot of advisors won't necessarily know about this one, but it is something worth considering, is that some insurers will allow you to exclude certain hazardous sports and activities from a life insurance policy rather than to pay an extra premiums. And the reason that they'll do this is because it's, I guess, from their side, pretty easy to, to, to know if somebody's had an accident while they were skydiving that's, that's led to, to them passing away, sadly. Um, I guess one of the ones where they, because they, they, it's up to each individual insurer as to what they, they do with this and if they will allow it. So some won't allow it for scuba diving, for example, because you know, you've got things like the bends, for example, that scuba divers can, can experience and they can have serious complications afterwards. So it, it, that, that level of proof can be harder for that. And obviously for life insurance, nobody ever wants an unknown with these. But I guess, you know, if you are seeing a super, super high premium, obviously preference should always be to pay that premium to have full cover with with, you know, with no exclusions, but actually sometimes people will have their own insurances in place in case they do have, um, you know, a serious injury or if they do pass away due to their, you know, their, their, their hobby. So sometimes an exclusion can be appropriate, but usually insurers will not offer it as a standard and you must ask for it. I would just say, obviously, it's a very, very serious conversation to have with your client if it is going to be considered. So we didn't opt for that. Um, we agreed that because he was doing sort of 50 to 100 jumps per year, actually for £38 a month, it's, you know, we, we felt it was worth having full cover. Now, one other thing that we did do for this customer, we did consider and we did actually do this, is we, have the, we had the option of basically having guaranteed level premiums. So in other words, these premiums never change. And that's what most life insurance policies are in the UK. You buy a premium for £60, £80 a month, and that price is the same from start to finish. For this customer to get the £60 per month, we actually chose to have a cheaper policy where the premiums go up every year as he gets older. So his premium this year might be £60, his premium next year might be 65 and 70 etc., etc. It's going to go up every single year until the end of the policy. Now, my preference, 100%, is always for somebody to have a guaranteed level premium. But for this gentleman, actually, we thought, well, we could do this. Um, he was comfortable with it. It helped to offset some of that additional premium that he was due to pay. And actually, he's not going to be skydiving, you know, forever. He's, he's coming up to 50. Um, you know, he, he won't keep doing it to this degree forever. So the idea is that then we can hopefully review this at some point in the future. And as long as his health permits and there's no obviously changes, et cetera, then hopefully we can switch him on to, to, on to, on to that fixed premium at that point so does that make sense <laughs> yeah yeah I think it does make sense I think it's one of those things you know like you say you know you've been very clear there and I think it's again it's being very clear and open with the clients as well isn't it so it's sort of saying look we could do this option and be guaranteed at this price forever or we can do it this way which is obviously going to be from this example you were saying it's going to be 20 pound per month cheaper from the start you know your premiums being increased by quite a significant amount because of you know so like the skydiving and like you say, it's at a point where it's it's not going to probably be happening for much longer. And, you know, that the importance of reviewing the cover and, you know, once, you know, you're reviewing the cover, even though he's going to be a couple of years older, once that kind of scuba, sorry, scuba, I mean, skydiving has gone out of the way, it's completely changing his spot there. Um, that's, you know, the, the premium itself should decrease significantly anyway. I mean, would there be the option then possibly with that insurer to say to them, look, I know you've been charging this much, much extra for this amount of time, but now he's, you know, we're two years down the line, he's no longer doing the skydiving. 
can we just in a sense take that out now now that you know maybe even with proof you know a written thing from the client saying i will no longer be scuba and um, keep saying scuba diving because <laughs> you mentioned scuba diving once I'm just throwing think on squirrel so squirrel <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah so with the, the the skydiving you know then surely as well that should be a point where even if there maybe has been medical changes or stuff you know we can potentially still just bring that premium immediately down by quite a bit yeah. So, so the, the the short answer now is yes, um, but it is insurer dependent. So we we are, we are seeing more companies now allowing that, where if somebody does have a significant change like that, in the same way that if somebody stops smoking, for example, you know they they'll ask for a written declaration, maybe you know after they've been a non-smoker for twelve months, and then they'll apply a premium premium discount. We can see something similar for for cases like this as well, but it will depend on the time the purchase the policy was purchased, and it will depend on the insurer because not everyone will do it yeah and i suppose as well you know as with anything at all points insurers can change their stances going forward you know obviously they are businesses they're going to be changing risk appetites and strategies all the time so we may have an idea of something at this point but a couple of years down the line things may potentially change and I suppose to put it from an insurer's point of view as well with it is, you know, yes, it's great if they do allow this um, for obvious reasons, but actually there is a risk there because if somebody signs that and then they go, let's say this chap stops stops um, doing his skydiving and then, I don't know, five years down, he signs his letter and says, yep, I'm out of it. Then five years later, says, do you know what? I really miss that. And he gets back into it heavily. Obviously, the insurer has already reduced the premiums. Does he then have yeah. to sign a letter to say, well, I'm doing it again, you know, or is it then just allowed, you know? So, so there is that added bit of complication with it as well. And, and it obviously had a bit of risk as well. Yes, tricky. And um, so a final case today, are we, are we back to health now? Are we doing yes, yeah, so finish, okay. finish off. And, and interestingly, another cancer one actually as well. So, um, so, so this case actually started just before, uh, before lockdown and before COVID. So, um, you know, it's, it, it sort of got um, extended a little bit over the, uh, obviously the last couple of months, as, as you could probably well imagine. Um, but this, this gentleman um, in his mid-70s was a non-smoker. Now he was type 2 diabetic, well controlled with diet and with tablets, um, but he'd also had prostate cancer, which had been diagnosed nine months ago, so less than a year ago. Um, now he had, a, so, so basically he had a Gleason score of seven and it was a stage 2A. Now, basically, these just indicate how advanced the cancer was. Um, I guess, you know, probably a lot of people have heard of stages of cancer. Typically, you go stage 1, 2, 3, and 4, depending on how, again, how advanced it was. The Gleason score is more about the grade. Um, so a Gleason score of 7 is, is the higher end of a medium grade. Um, an 8, 9, or a 10 would have been a higher grade in cancer. So I guess you could say it was on the, the higher end of the middle sort of ground of it on that sense um and actually you know a lot of critical illness policies will use gleason score of seven as a start when they will start paying out as being serious enough so it's kind of just on that on that cusp with it uh, now he had a prostatectomy nine months ago so basically had most of his prostate removed um he didn't need radiotherapy and he didn't need chemotherapy now obviously this wasn't that long ago um in the grand sort of in the grand scheme of things um but most um i guess you know you probably would expect with this one to, to some degree is that most insurance companies were declining and postponing cover for him until he was further along from his treatment a lot of companies would want to see 
them at least a couple of years down the line just to make sure that everything was okay. The things with prostate cancer is actually, um, from my understanding, it's got a very high survival rate, um, especially where it's obviously been been caught at a reasonable time and obviously treatment's been been done. So um, there are a couple of insurers who actually would consider life insurance for this gen's hormone um and and you know i I think that for for me is just incredible to say that someone could actually have you know high you know with a higher end of medium grade prostate cancer have his prostate removed and still be offered life insurance within a year of having his treatment i think is a real testament to how far our industries come um you know and, and, and how many good things they can do so we chose a company and we applied for £100,000 worth of life insurance over 10 years. Went out to the doctors, um, got a medical report, got his specialist reports, his oncology reports, etc. And the case was declined, unfortunately. So the insurance company said they wouldn't be willing to offer the cover for him. Um, this is where I think you know, cure are different. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying we're alone in this, but I think you know, this is something that we do that's very, very different to, to a lot of firms. Um, now, the decline letter, essentially, you know, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was either due to your prostate cancer or due to information received from your GP. It was one of the two. But obviously, as these letters usually are, they are relatively basic and to the point. What we didn't understand is we knew this cover should have been offered. We'd had a lengthy conversation with an underwriter beforehand. Um, I think it had possibly even been discussed with the reinsurers, which are the, the, the people behind the insurers who pay the majority of the claim, almost like the insurance company's insurance company. And um, yeah, we were really, really surprised because, you know, as far as we were aware, this client's specialist had said, you are completely clear of this. I, I'm going to just state before I say this, I'm not a doctor, I'm not medically trained. Um, so I, please do not take what I'm about to say as absolutely medically, medically factual. But um, we were able, with the customer's consent, to speak to the insurance company. Um, and we were able to go into a lot more detail than just relating to your prostate cancer. So what we actually found out is that um, when they cut away the the prostate they will look for a negative what they call a negative margin all around the the excision area so basically the 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 area that they've cut out and what that means is there is an area of tissue around the cancerous region which is testing normal so it's classed as normal tissue there's no evidence it was cancer in that almost circle or whatever shape it is around the excision Um, and if there's a negative margin they can then safely say reasonably with reasonable confidence we think that we've got it all and the danger is from my understanding is if there is an area where they couldn't prove it or it was still proving positive i.e., a positive margin that would show that there was cancerous cancerous cells or tissue right up to the edge of the excision point um and this is basically what had happened they said there was there was evidence of a positive margin um on an area that that, on, on the area that they'd removed now we were then able to take this and obviously have an extremely sensitive conversation with the customer. Um, I was going to say that's a difficult conversation to have, isn't it? Because someone's had, obviously they've faced cancer, they've had the surgery, they've had the surgeon, they've had the GP, everybody say to them, you're through it, you know, that's that's fine, you know, you're, you're cancer free in a sense. Yes, you'll have checkups, but you know, we've got it. Yeah. And then you're then told by an insurer, well, actually there's still positive cancer margins there and there's a chance yeah yeah and there's a chance i mean that is that is a huge 
responsibility upon an advisor that advisors are not trained for. Um, I don't think there's anything in our industry to actually train an advisor as to how to handle that conversation with a client and prepare them for, for, for one, for the client to hear that and also for the advisor how to present that in the best way and then also how to look after themselves depending upon how the client is themselves when they hear that information. It's a very, very tough conversation to have. It, it is. And, and, you know, I mean, this insurance company, I'm sure if needed, would have had that conversation with the customer direct if needs be. And, and you know, I guess one of those circumstances where they probably could have contacted the doctor and, you know, gone through that route. But, but actually, you know, this customer themselves have been in the insurance industry. They know how this works. Um, and I had an, a very, very good relationship with this customer. So I could gauge it and, and, and you know, realize that I could have a level of a conversation with him. Now, um, in no way did I at any time indicate that he still had cancer or that they hadn't got it. Um, in yeah. fact, my, my approach was more that this is, this is, you know, more likely a mistake or that the doctor and the specialist haven't actually, I'm not saying that there is still something there, it's just they've not provided evidence that there isn't. So what we now need to do is get that evidence that there isn't. That's what we need to speak to your specialist about. Um, Client was absolutely fantastic about it. He got straight onto his specialist. They had a conversation about it. Um, The specialist wrote a letter and said, actually, looking at this, I can understand why you've said this and why you've thought this. Here's what you need and here's the evidence that you've asked for. And he was then able to provide additional evidence and additional support. Went back to the insurers, went to the reinsurers, and I am pleased to say that they then offered the cover for him. Um, so this was the, a perfect example for me of where that customer could have walked away with absolutely no cover whatsoever had it have been left at that stage. The insurer had already paid for the medical evidence. We'd spent time on it. The customer had spent time on it. But actually, it needed that little bit of extra help to get it over that, that last hurdle. Now, it could have gone the opposite way. Um, and, and, you know, some obviously will go the opposite way and not go ahead. But at this stage, just taking that extra step was able to see this case over the line and get him cover. We were able to arrange him £100,000 worth of life insurance over 10 years. Now, bear in mind, this chap's in his mid-70s, so his basic premiums were quite high anyway. Um, And the final premium for for this chap was um, around about £350 per month. Now, the interesting point about this is his premiums only went up by 75% which, you know, yes, on his size premiums because of his age obviously makes a, a bigger difference. But if you compare that to some of the premium increases we saw earlier, it's nowhere near as big considering obviously prostate cancer within the last year and diabetes. So obviously yeah. very happy customer. And um, yeah, just uh, obviously everyone was really happy with this one. I think, you know, that one's a really good testament and to show people as well that it's sometimes you know, and what we do quite regularly, you know, it's, it's all about digging for that little bit more information, just a bit more clarity as to why something has been sort of like decided the way that it has. Because, you know, if the insurers are making a decision, most of the time it's because they maybe have a little bit of extra information that's come out possibly in a GP report that you're unaware of. Or from what we see quite often, and it's, it's not... Um, it's not having a go at GPs or anything like that, but GPs are under enormous pressure and they're under, you know, the resources are so strained and we do find quite 
often that a lot of these reports maybe will have the wrong information in them and they do need to be corrected um, quite regularly and it's, it's quite I think it's quite surprising actually the amount of times that we come across that thinking about the amount of people who, who do have difficulties getting insurance how many times it may just simply be that there's something in their reports that that they don't know about that's been put in by in, in error potentially and um, they don't necessarily have the support services of an advisor there to be able to say well actually let's have a look at this because something's just not adding up right now I'm not saying that's always the case but it's just something that we do see quite regularly and um, and yeah it's definitely worth doing a bit more digging. So I've seen quite a lot of cases where people have had diabetes in their records but yet it's not meant for them it was meant for another customer or it'd been you know for, for sorry for another patient and stuff so you know it's it's so important to get these things checked sometimes. Absolutely absolutely um, and I, I was going to say you know obviously thank you so much for providing those case studies you know I think it's really important to just showcase obviously we've done quite a few health ones I think that's probably where a lot of people have quite a few queries about but to show the different types of risks as well you know we're looking at we looked at occupations we looked at squirrels skydiving out of the air um, <laughs> it's our next line of insurance to do isn't it so skydiving squirrels <laughs> absolutely i am there to help anybody who wants to set that up absolutely <laughs> um but yeah i think you know thank you very much for that and i say next time and um, people you know select the people that are listening we will be going on doing sort of like real kind of income protection uh, focus just to kind of get that message across there as to the differences that can be done there because I think it's quite standard as well, you know, people with health conditions, that income protection isn't always seen as the most um, accessible route. And uh, I know once you've got a couple of medical conditions, it does become trickier and trickier. But sometimes it can just be a matter of uh, sort of like changing the way of looking at it a little bit as an advisor and, uh, and trying slightly different routes. Um, so we're coming to the end of the case study section. So Alan, I think you are going to have a very quick chat. Um, obviously, you do quite a lot of different things across the industry. but um, the main things we were going to chat about this time was the work that you're doing in the uh, PDG, uh, sort of chatting about the, obviously you're going to go through the funeral pledge and the claims charter. So this is something that's really good as well for advisors to be aware of, because these are things that a lot of insurers have signed up to. And it's kind of like a bit of a best practice or certain set of standards that they agree to uphold if there is um, a death claim or at the point of any claim. And, um, and it's good to know about that because if you do have a client who's having to put a claim forward or a client's family, then if you know one of the insurers is in a sense signed up to this, then you know what kind of level of service and processes should be put in place and you can follow the, in a sense, the PDG's charters to see what should be happening. But Alan, if you want to take over and explain it a bit more, please. Yeah, sure. So, um, so, so yeah, um, I have, well, I've got a couple of different hats, but I guess um, one of them, one, one of the main hats that I wear other than as, uh, as MD at Cura is as the current chair of the PDG or the Protection Distributors Group. So um, the PDG, for anybody who doesn't know, is a group of 14 um, insurance intermediaries, all advisors, who basically work together um, to, you know, to help promote best practice, to help raise the positive profile of, of protection and you know to help improve customer outcomes you know we're we're on the front front line we're on the call first you know we're talking to customers we see the good and you know sometimes the bad as well that that will happen in the in the protection market and you know having a group like this is just so important to be able to to help to to raise the standards and just to, to help more customers um and you know f f so so when i first um started in the in, in the industry 
um, my this was sort of 15 16 years ago my my old boss basically said you you will never ever can work with competitive you know never collaborate with other people never have anyone in fact there was a story about him chucking a you know an ifa out of our office when he came in to meet me at one point um you know he used to just say they'll steal your ideas they'll steal your business you just can't work with other people and you know he, he was a dinosaur this was a thing of the past but what the pdg really proves to me is just how wrong he really was because you know as a group you've got their 14 firms who you know arguably are all competition you know we, we all work in different intermediary firms but we share ideas of best practice we talk about customer outcomes and the industry and you know it's there to have a voice for protection advisors um you know it's it is proof that working together can really really accomplish great things so to, to give you a couple of examples then so the the, the pdg have put forward a, a couple of campaigns um for insurers now the first one that um that we released back in 2016 was the funeral pledge now obviously most claims as we know in for life insurance are paid quickly um and you know luckily most don't necessarily get tied up too much but unfortunately, some do get tied up due to things like probate. So the insurers will have them all approved and ready, but then they are tied up because they're not placed in trust. Um, you know, you're waiting for the grant of probate, things to all be sorted out, etc. And And what's really, really, I, I guess, daft in a way here is a customer's family might be sat there with £100,000 ready to pay out in a life insurance policy. But until that probate is sorted... It just sits there. So the family might end up needing to then borrow money in order to pay for the funeral, even though they've got all that money sat there ready to pay out to them. Um, it's crackers. It really is. So what the PDG asked for um, as part of their funeral pledge was that an insurance company would pledge at least £5,000 to the family of the deceased person so that they can pay the funeral without having to borrow it um now you know it, it is relatively simple but can have a huge huge impact to, to some of those families who are unfortunately caught out by this now we set a few, a few criteria with it so we asked that it be paid directly to the funeral director and obviously it be deducted from the final claim amount we asked only that it be paid once the claim had been approved medically. So the insurer could then rule out any risk of non-disclosure. So only paying out what they would have already agreed to. And we offered, we asked that it be offered proactively on any case where there was a delay. Um, for example, such as something like probate. Um, and I'm pleased to say that to date, 12 insurance companies have now signed up to the funeral pledge. So it's, it's, you know, it's been a fantastic success. And actually, all of the 12 companies that have signed up to it have exceeded the 5,000 and said they would pay up to up to 10,000 um, if it was needed. So, you know. That's all on the PDG website, isn't it, as well? The ones, people who have signed up for it and, and that information is there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, the second one, which was launched a couple of years later in 2018, was a claims charter. So, you know, I, I don't think anyone would argue if I said, you know, the, the moment of truth for any insurer is at the point of claim. It's why people buy the policy. You know, we all hope that people don't need them. But if they do need them, that's what they are there for. Um, you know, it's when the customer's family needs us, needs us the most or when the customer themselves needs us the most if it's, you know, if it's income protection or critical illness. Um, and as advisors, you know, we do see um, again, you know, more been on the front line of sort of handling the claims and speaking to the families, we do see the good and the bad 
that happens. Largely good, I would add, um, you know, which uh, obviously is, is, is great. Um, but we therefore decided to use our experience um, and put together seven key points that we felt would help insurers deliver an efficient and hassle-free claims experience. So I'll quickly run through these. Um, so the first is we ask that a dedicated claims team be provided, um, that claims be assessed by the phone wherever possible, allowing digital documentation to be sent rather than relying on the post and, and you know, old fashioned wet signatures, and actually the post only to be used as a last resort um, or where there's no other sort of choice. Um, this next one, um, it's you know, is 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 so important for me. Um, is that no potential claimant can be turned away by anyone other than the claims team. So, and I'll give you an example of this. So, so this was one that we we had. We had a call from a client um, uh, years ago now, um, and the customer had had a um, acoustic neuroma which is basically a form of benign brain tumor. Now he'd rang his insurance company and he told them about it and said, could he make a claim on the policy? And he was told no, because it wasn't a claimable condition. Now what the person at the insurer hadn't realized who wasn't a member of the claims team is that actually an acoustic neuroma was a form of benign brain tumor and a benign brain tumor was covered by his policy. So obviously we got involved, we helped the customer back to the insurer, we registered a claim, and I am pleased to say that the policy paid out for the client. Now, had we not been involved or had he have not spoken to us, he'd probably still be sat there, he might have canceled the policy or he'd still be sat there with the claim not paid on it. So having, you know, making sure people can't be turned down by someone who isn't part of the claims team. And also on that is to make sure that the people handling that, especially if there is a rejection involved, that they are trained to do that. To be fair for both the person speaking to the client and the client. Um, we ask that claimants have a named point of contact and they have regular updates at least every two weeks unless otherwise agreed and that obviously things be responded to quickly as well. Um, we ask that intermediaries are notified of all claims um, you know, without having to opt into them and this is just again it is so important because as an intermediary a lot of us will ring our customers on reasonably regular basis you know maybe once every year, for example, or every couple of years to review people's policies. So imagine what happens if we ring a customer and actually that family, we asked to speak to Mr. Jones and Mr. Jones's family then informs us that actually he passed away six months ago and made a claim on his insurance policy. Now that might be a partner. It might be a family member. It might be a child. You know, if we asked to speak to the father or, or the mother or something who then have to inform us that they passed away. And that's just not a position that's good for, for us or for the family. So, you know, to minimize distress on both sides, just so, so important. Um, we ask that the funeral pledge or a similar advanced um, payment to speed up claims is, uh, is proactively offered. Um, and once a claim is approved, we ask that it be paid within 72 hours, um, basically to the, to the family once it's all gone through. So, you know, these, these are... I guess some of them are relative, most of them are relatively straightforward and most insurers would do at least some of these, but there weren't many who was, who were doing all of these. And again, similar to the funeral pledge, I'm, I'm really delighted to say that there are 12 insurers also who have signed up to this and a number who are working hard to, to be on it as well. Yeah. I was going to say what's nice about those things. I think like with the funeral pledge as well, 
it's just it's the right thing to do and it's another signifier from insurers that they are doing everything that they, that they can to support people when these times you know when things like these sorry the claims happen and I think with the claims charts like you were just saying that it just really struck me it's just like it kind of it's just kind of common sense a lot of those things you know it is just something that should really be happening as standard but I think probably it's a bit probably a case of where you know some people over here have done you know certain things that have worked well another insurer over here has done some things that have worked well as intermediaries we kind of sat watching it all and then seeing all these best practices coming in different places and trying to put them all together saying you know, actually this is a really good strategy and um, going forward so I'm obviously I'm delighted to see that the the the, the claims chart and the funeral pledges had so much support from insurers and um and I was going to say I think you have had a, a good little natter there so I don't think we have time to talk about all your other things that you're doing so <laughs> do you want to chat a little bit about your access to insurance working group and then I think what we'll probably do is save your new position as an executive on the income protection task force for our actual income protection masterclass that probably fit in well there so do you want to finish by just telling everybody about the access to insurance working group what you've been up to and and where it stands that was Kay's subtle hint told me to be quiet and uh, and hurry up a little bit in case anyone didn't get it's so unusual to be able to do that to you for a change I know (laughs) it's usually (laughs) one of those things where Kay's you know I'll ask Kay how her day has gone and she'll sort of you know read it chapter and verse of what's happened she said, oh how was yours i'll go yeah it was all right thanks <laughs> you hate it when i don't take a two-hour time to tell you about my day you love my tales <laughs> <laughs> so access to insurance uh, so yes uh, i think most people obviously will have heard of this working party by now and obviously what we what we do um very quick overview so the pdg are, are quite heavily obviously involved in this as well and obviously it's a personal interest to to, to me as well in in terms of helping you know more people get access to insurance especially those people who are living with health conditions and disabilities so um two years ago um the working party was formed and we have four main work streams um, one the first which is underwriting and transparency so this is all about how do we make sure that um, decisions to you know applications to if, if for example somebody is declined postponed or offered a higher premium how do we ensure that those decisions are communicated openly and transparently but at the same point not giving the customer so much you know mind-boggling information that you know they, they, they wouldn't understand it um, and the perfect example to me is if we go back to the case studies that I gave and especially the last one with the gentleman with prostate cancer um, you know he we were obviously told in that decline letter that it was due to medical information could it have been a little bit more open could it have been a little bit more that might have made us or the client realize um what was happening or maybe if he'd have asked for more how could we have got that extra bit of information second uh, work stream is signposting so effectively for people who are declined insurance especially those who go to buy direct from insurers or online if they can't be offered life insurance or critical illness etc rather than just sending them on the way and saying we can't cover you what can we do to signpost them to a specialist firm um, and you know one example of that now is Bieber have launched their find a, a broker service for the protection industry where there are a list of specialists on there so if somebody is struggling to find insurance they can go on there and hopefully find a specialist who can help we have a work stream dedicated to group risk so group insurance is basically life insurance um, critical illness income protection but where a group of people buy it mainly through a company and it's a, it's a fantastic way for people with health conditions and disability to get the same insurance as everybody else because the risk is pooled 
amongst a group of people. Um, we then have, uh, last but not least, a professionalism work stream, which is all about promoting and improving professionalism within the protection insurance sector. So all of these have come together um, and um, I'm aware that I'm obviously t probably stripped a little bit for time, so I won't go into to too much with it, um, but really do and are helping um, to improve things for people with disabilities and medical conditions. Brilliant. Well, hopefully we'll hear some, like you said, you know, the Bieber developments um, come forward from that as well. I'm obviously on the, um, I'm an executive on the committee there. So it's really good to see that that Finder Broker scheme has really kicked off, um, quite spurred on by obviously what's been done in, in the groups that you've just mentioned there. So we good to see, so like as we come up in the next few months or so, the next things are being developed. But uh, we've got on to our, um, sort of like our Truth and Life feature now. Ooh. Uh, so, ooh. so, just so I feel like I needed you... to do the sound effect there. <laughs> <laughs> Why not then? Actually, I feel like I'm going to do that each time now, but maybe my other guests won't know <laughs> what that means. Um, so do you want to give your truth or lie, Alan, please? Yep. So my truth or lie is that I was stung by a bee this morning whilst out running at boot camp. And I'll say that my truth or lie is that I was stung by a bee whilst fossil hunting with the boys this morning. So, yeah, let's see if anybody gets that one right. So one of us was stung by a bee anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> so thank you very, very much um, for everybody that's listening. And thank you for, for joining me, Alan. I know this wasn't necessarily the sort of like your most favorite thing to do on a bank holiday Monday, but I appreciate that you've done it with me. Um, I'm going to be back in two weeks time chatting with Vicky Churcher. We're going to be chatting about her experience having a heart attack, her recovery and the, the support that she received from her insurances that really helped her and her family. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that you can claim a CPD certificate on the website for listening to this. Now, one thing I have found out is that some um, insurance companies, and I think some other companies as well, certain um, sort of like the internet systems that are set up in the businesses are not keen on Google Forms, and the CPD certificates are done using a Google Form. So if you are finding that, and there's being like a bit of a hissy fit when you're trying to access it, please don't worry at all. Just contact me on social media. All I need is sort of the, the episode that you were listening to, that your name and your email address, and I can get everything sent over to you. So hopefully that'll work if you've been having any issues but uh, thank you again alan for joining me no thank you very much for having me i will see you in a couple of minutes i shall see you in a couple of minutes too bye <laughs> cheers bye